Let's pray. Father, we uh, recognize that you have bid us for a short while, for a little while, to be in our homes and to shut the door until this wrath is overpassed. And this is reminiscent of the time in which the ancient Israelites, your people, were bid and told to go into their homes in the ghetto of Goshen until the wrath was over past. And Father, we have the assurance of the blood of the Lamb on our doorposts, even upon your people. We have the assurance and we make the request that you will light our homes with the lamp of the Lamb and with the word which comes forth even today. For the exposition of your word gives light and gives understanding to the simple. May the eyes of our hearts and the eyes of our understanding be enlightened today to truly see Jesus, whom you crowned with glory and honor, and in seeing him, to view our final destiny as glorified ones in him as justified, as glorified. We're grateful, Father, for this opportunity to continue in your word. And may you give people, your people, a great eagerness for the word. And may you awaken millions more to your son and grant them a hunger that only he can fulfill. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is increment 21, and I hope you'll be taking advantage not only of the spoken messages, and Jim is here recording once again, and the DVDs or video, and also the notes. There are some who don't understand quite how that works on the website. There is, if you tap in Hebrews and go to the Hebrews section, the Hebrews media series, under media, you'll find that there are three icons to the right of each increment and that the first and second have to do with audio and video. But the third increment, it's kind of tiny there, at least on my phone, is for the PDF or for the notes. And you can actually look at these notes and read them. Every time I do these messages, I have notes connected with it and what I do is edit these notes sometimes three or four times, still roughly edited when you get them, but they're designed and very beefed up with scripture references so that they can be a profitable study for you. And that's why I pray that our, our homes in this little while, until the wrath is overpassed, as it were, can light up your homes with the lamp of the Lamb. Now, we're engaged in a study of Hebrews, which I believe is the ideal homily and discourse and biblical book to study for such a time as this in our nation's history, in our international history, in our own personal histories, in our history as a church, as an assembly, as a small assembly. The initial exordium of Hebrews, which is Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, contains no direct quotations of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. But it does contain important allusions 
that God has appointed the son as heir of all things is an allusion to Psalm 2.8. Even as the reference to the son or to son in Hebrews 1.2 alludes to Psalm 2.7, which is in part directly quoted at the outset of the Florilegium or the collection of verses beginning with Hebrews 1.5. I think that the son through whom God made the universe, literally the ages, is also an allusion all the way back to Genesis 1.1. Since the Greek text says that God made the heavens and the earth in or by the beginning, or hearche, as it says, A-R-C-H-E. Arche being identified with the Son. The Son of God's love, as he's called in Colossians 1.13, and the visible image of God, as he's called in Colossians 1.15. He's also called in 1.18, the Arche, the Arche. And so it may be understood that this was a commonly held equation among the early Christians and scripture writers. That is, arche equals huios. The beginning equals the sun. The radiance of God's glory, as it's referred to in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, the exordium, is at least reminiscent of Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28. That this unique son and universal heir and prime agent of creation has sat down in the highest height at the right hand of the eternal majesty. Well, that is a definite allusion to Psalm 110 and verse 1, which is in the Greek text, Psalm 109.1. A most significant Quotation, a most significant psalm is Psalm 110.1, most important to the writers of the New Testament, to the early preachers, Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1 is directly quoted. It's alluded to in Hebrews, the exordium, but it's directly quoted in the florigelium or the florilegium rather, and the catena of verses between 1, 5, and 13 of Hebrews. It's directly quoted in Hebrews 1, 13. <clears throat> the catena, <clears throat> catena, as it's called, C-A-T-E-N-A, which is a series closely connected of verses, the catena that is launched from the exordium leads off with a direct quotation of Psalm 2, 7. And it concludes <clears throat> with a direct quotation of Psalm 110.1. I can't overemphasize the significance of this. Both of these psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, are called royal psalms, having to do with the king, or with God as king, or with Messiah as king. Both of these psalms, more specifically, are coronation 
psalms. And we've already spoken, ironically, of the Latinized form of crown being corona in this time, where during the time of a ravaging virus called coronavirus, our attention is drawn to the corona of glory and honor that we see Jesus crowned with. And, of course, retrospectively, we see a crown fashioned by piercing thorns and placed harshly on the head of our Savior Christ Jesus. Corona, coronation. Coronation psalms are at the heart of Hebrews. Again, Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-1. Coronation is the solemn act of crowning a sovereign or sometimes a sovereign's consort or vice-regent. Both of these ideas are pertinent in Hebrews since the son is crowned. And he is also the vice-regent of God, sitting on the same throne. That God being our father in heaven. Now in Psalm 5-2, God was called my king and my God by the psalm composer, my king and my God. This can be compared with Psalm 44-4 and with Daniel 4-37, even Nebuchadnezzar, after a conversion, recognized God to be the sovereign king. And this may also be compared with Thomas's exclamation when he saw the risen Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. John 20, 28. But God the King is also said to magnify the salvations. Please notice, he magnifies the salvations, and that word is plural in the Greek text. He magnifies tas soterias. The magna- he magnifies the salvations, or we could say the deliverances. Now, sometimes a plural indicates an intensity of something, or sometimes it does indicate the plurality of something. The intense salvation is indicated here. Again, and this is Psalm 1850, which is the Septuagint of 1751 of the Psalms. God the King is said to magnify the salvations of his king and to show loyalty to his anointed or to his Christ. That's a, that is a remarkable thing. He magnifies the salvations of his king and shows loyalty to his anointed. This is a picture of God the Father magnifying the salvation of the king, meaning Jesus, and the Father showing his loyalty or his fidelity to his Christ. He shows that fidelity to his Christ by raising him from the dead by exalting him to his own right hand and by telling him to sit at his right hand until all his enemies are made a footrest for his feet. 
God has even petitioned or made request of in Psalm 20 and verse 9, which is the Septuagint of Psalm 1910. Psalm 20 and verse 9, the people of God say, save your king. Sounds like things that are said in Great Britain sometimes. God save the queen or God save the king. Save your king, it says. Curie soson ton basilea. Curion soson ton basilea. Lord, save your king. Now we're going to relate this to God the Father saving Jesus who had taken on death and become sin. Jesus actually in taking a position lower than angels for a little while. He did that for the purpose of suffering and death. He who is the omnipotent God became a slave and obedient to the father to the extent of death by crucifixion. In his dying and in his suffering, he made himself incapable of saving himself and required to be delivered by God, his father, and by the spirit of the Lord. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the Lord, the spirit is, there is liberation. So Jesus' obedience to God put him in a position where he was not able to save himself. Now, of course, as God, he was able to save himself, but he put himself in a position whereas people mocked him when he was crucified and they said, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Let him save himself. But he was incapable of saving himself. Because he rendered himself that by becoming sin and by suffering for our sins. So Jesus' obedience to God put him in a position where he was not able to save himself. Psalm 22, 31. Mark 15, 30 to 31. And so he had to look to God, his father. In Psalm 22, 19 to 22, he cries out, save me from the mouth of the lion. He cries out for God to save him. Now these pleas for God to help cried out from the cross were followed by Jesus' confident assertion still on the cross in Psalm 22, 23. The Septuagint Psalm 21, 23, he says this, I will fully relate your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. This is the confidence that Jesus had of his own resurrection, of his, in his father to show loyalty to his anointed, confidence in his father to save his king. This Psalm 2222, which is the Septuagint or Greek translation, you know, Psalm 2123, is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. I will praise you in the congregation. 
Though Psalm 22 begins with the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Its final paragraph of Psalm 22 has the declaration, kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Same Psalm, Psalm 22. Kingship or the kingdom belongs to God, to the Lord. He rules over the nations, Psalm 2230, Septuagint 2129. So even Psalm 22 contains the element of the king's coronation. The king who had become a little lower than the angels for a little while did so for the purpose of suffering and death. And in that suffering and death, he did not move to save himself. He put himself in a position that we are all in. There's no move we can make to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. He did not move to save himself. He cried out to the father to save him. Now follow this reasoning. His pleas and appeals and cries for salvation were ultimately heard because of his reverent obedience. Moreover, Jesus' obedience resulted not only in his own justification, Romans 3.26, Romans 6.7. We did 10 messages on justification not too long ago. 1 Timothy 3.16. All of these make Jesus the object of God's justification. He was justified. He who died was justified. He who suffered was delivered. God magnifies the deliverances or the salvations of his king, of his vice-regent, of his anointed, of his Christ. Now, how does he magnify these salvations or this, if we were to make the plural, what it means in one sense, it means so great a salvation. Salvation's plural would indicate so great a salvation. God magnifies the so great salvation of his king. How does he do it? He magnifies the salvation of his king, his son of Jesus, by expanding that salvation to all of humanity in him. For in Christ all will be made alive. Haven't you read that? For in him all are justified with life, justified and made righteous, Romans 5, 18 to 19. God magnifies the salvations of his king. For in Christ, all will be made alive. Not only his justification, but the justification of all of humankind in him and by him. He who could not preserve his own life, says Psalm 2230, was given the imperishable life of resurrection. 
after his death and burial. He was given this life, this imperishable life of resurrection, not only for himself, but for all. For in Christ, all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. This is what I mean when I say we see Jesus once having been crowned with a corona of thorns and inflicted with the virus of human sin. Now crowned with a corona of glory and honor as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, conflating, blending, mixing Romans with Hebrews, which is our privilege having gone through Romans in a disciplined, diligent, and reverent way. When you conflate Romans with Hebrews, you see the king as the righteous one. Romans 1.17. Confer with Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous one who died, Romans 6.7 and Romans 8.34, and who was justified, Romans 3.26 and Romans 6.7. He was justified by God. Jesus was justified by God, justified by the Spirit in 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus is that king, and the righteous one is that king who was crowned with a crown fashioned with sharp, piercing thorns in his crucifixion. And a placard was placed over his head stating his crime, a public announcement of the crime that Jesus committed and for which he was crucified. The crime is that he was the king of the Jews. Here is Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. This public announcement of his crime was written in Hebrew or Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, all the languages that could be understood at the time. John 19, 19 to 20. Many languages will be heard saying, the Lord is Jesus, Yahweh is Yeshua, to the glory of God when every tongue pledges allegiance to him as every knee genuflects to him and every eye sees the one who was wounded in the house of his beloved Zechariah 12:10 Zechariah 13:6 compared with Psalm 22:16 Revelation 1:7 in connection with Isaiah 45 22 and 23, Romans 14, 11, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. The king then is the same as the righteous one whose salvations, plural, are magnified to include all of humanity and even all of the groaning creation, even the universe in its present situation of entropy. This is the so great salvation that is spoken of in the first burst of exhortation in Hebrews 2, 
1 through 4. The first burst of exhortation comes in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, even as the exordium or the initial introduction comes in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. So the righteous one, says the scripture, has many afflictions, but the Father, as well as the Lord, the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18, delivered him out of them all. Psalm 34.19. Psalm 34.19. In that sense, Jesus had many afflictions and many salvations. But the plural of salvation in the context of their magnification must also relate to the reality that the justification of the crucified king, which God performed in his loyalty to his anointed, brought justification and life to all of the human race, the same all that was condemned in the single inclusive representative Adam is given righteousness, justification, and life through the one man, the second and final single inclusive representative, Sir Jesus Christ. This is what you get when you blend Hebrews and Romans. You get kind of an explosion of insights, kind of like a fireworks of insights in the mind and in the heart. So the plural of salvation in the context of their magnification relates to the reality that the justification of the crucified king brought justification and life, imperishable life, to all of the human race, as Romans 5.18 indicates. This justification came about in the resurrection of Jesus, who had been delivered over to death for our sins and delivered up from the dead in resurrection, a resurrection which is for our justification, Romans 4.25. Explosions of insight, a fireworks display of insights occurs when a Hebrews commentary comes into contact with Romans or with John's gospel for that matter, or with Revelation, the book of Revelation. God, the king's coronation of Jesus, was different from the coronation that Jesus had received on earth from men. God, the king, has Jesus sitting at his right hand in the highest height of the heavens, where Jesus of Nazareth, whose only crime on earth was in being the king of the Jews, is crowned with glory and honor now. Again, the first quotation and the last quotation of the Florilegium, following the initial exordium of Hebrews, are both taken from coronation psalms. And both of these coronation psalms have the king speaking to his vice-regent, co-king, by the name Son. Son. No angel has ever received this honor, or ever will. Only Jesus. Now, I've said that we are presently in the clashing juncture 
of two eons or ages. And this came up in Romans 8. It comes up again in Hebrews. It's all throughout the New Testament in one form or another. We live. You want to put us on a map? There's a a map of where we are in God's plan. We are in the collision of two aeons, A-E-O-N-S, eons or ages. That collision is identified as, in the Greek, an agona, A-G, long O-N-A, agona. And an agona is a stadium of struggle or a theater of war. It's an arena surrounded by seats, a gladiatorial arena, a, an arena of contest, struggle, contention. That's what this time is right now. And this time extends from the coronation of Jesus at the right hand of the Father in A.D. 30 to an unnamed date when he appears again, bringing salvation. His parousia, as it's called. His second coming, as some refer to it. His appearance. Hebrews 9.28 refers to it. Now, I have shown how this agona is acknowledged in many ways. In Hebrews 9.26, it says, Christ appeared once in the suntelea, S-U-N-T-E-L-E-I-A, suntelea of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I've shown that suntelea has to do not just with the end of the ages or the culmination of the ages or the conclusion of the ages, as many translations have it, but it has to do with the end of one eon or age and the beginning of another eon or age. And that's the cross. And that initiated the messianic everlasting age that has invaded this present evil age, as Paul calls it in Galatians 1.4. This doctrine requires development. This needs to be developed for such a time as we live today. This doctrine of the agona is of phenomenally extraordinary importance. And I'll tell you why in a moment. The powers that have held humanity enslaved are deeply horrified by the liberation that was won at the cross. So there is sometimes violent and perhaps more oftentimes a subtle reaction by these powers. Just as recent events in our own time may prove to be revealed to be the murderous reaction of powers in this world who are threatened with being stripped of their intense ambitions for world domination. It is imperative that we understand the nature of the present clash of the eons. If we don't, we'll always be unduly perplexed and racked with paralyzing anxiety 
Now, there's a normal anxiety, a normal concern. Paul had that for all the churches. I have that for this church. I have that for my family, my loved ones. I have that for my nation. I have that for my generation and generations to come. But there is a neurotic and paralyzing anxiety that we need to put off. In Ephesians 6.13, Paul speaks of the evil day and of the saints' resistance in that day. Resistance of invisible powers, heavenly powers, powers, spiritual wickedness in the high places, not political or human powers. Now that evil day, listen carefully, the evil day that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6.13 is the same as the present evil age as Paul identified our present time in Galatians 1.4. It's not that we have a bad day one day, a good day on another day. No, the entire temporal stretch between the coronation of Jesus and the parousia when he appears again, that whole stretch is an evil day. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have good days. He who will see good days and love life ought to just keep his mouth from slander and heresy and a lot of other things, Peter said. You want to love life? You want to see good days? Then speak the right things and avoid gossip and maligning, vituperation, the sins of the tongue. So it's not that we don't have good days during this evil age and that we it, it's not that we're not confident, hopeful, even joyous with expectation. It does not mean that we do not enjoy life most of our lives. We enjoy fellowship and companionship in Christ and with Christ and with friends and family and fellow believers. But it does mean that this whole stretch of time, which Paul compared to eternity as a momentary, momentary compared to the everlasting age that has broken in with the Christ event. This is called the evil eon. It's an evil day, and by evil day is meant a day of adversity. Proverbs 24.10. It is described as evil, poneros, not just because of its, the characteristic of moral or ethical or violent evils that are seen throughout this age. It is called evil because the evil one, as he's called, is still active and still fires his menacing flaming missiles and executes his pernicious plans. It's called evil in the sense that this age has its contagions, not only physical, but moral, spiritual, ideological contagions. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but have high morale, 
I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. Christ died for our sins, says Galatians 1, 4. Not only to save us from our sins, Matthew 1, 21, but to save us from this present evil age. Again, Galatians 1, 4. Our afflictions are many. But the Lord delivers us out of them all. Christians who expect some triumphant and jubilant experience at all times or who are told that this is the only true Christian experience, one of triumphant, joyous happiness and freedom from adversity, well, they're being deceived by self-deceived deceivers. And they're deceiving themselves. Moreover, many of us find, as Jesus found in his time, that we can be wounded not only by the world, but by those in the household of faith. Zechariah 13.6, as Brian Messick recently brought that to my attention, brings that to the fore. Again, the comparatively brief stretch of time between the exaltation and the coronation of Jesus to his universal salvific appearance, that whole stretch is a day of adversity or an evil day. But it's also concurrently a day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.3, Paul speaks of the prophecy of Isaiah 49.8, which prophesied a day of salvation when God would come to help. Well, Paul said, now is that day of salvation. It's a day when salvation can actually be experienced by human beings while we're still in our mortal bodies. So where are we on the map? We are now located on the map of God's plan, precisely at the collision of the temporal evil day and the everlasting day of salvation. And in fact, these two days run concurrently for a little while. Notice I said for a little while, yet a little while. Isaiah 26, 20, yet a little while. Hebrews 10.37, for a little while Jesus was made lower than the angels for the purpose of suffering and death, but now he's glorified. Yet a little while the wrath of God is but for a moment, but his mercy endures forever. Psalm 30, verse 5. For a little while, yet a little while, and he that is coming will come. And if we draw back, God has no pleasure in us, but we're not of those who draw back. We are those who persevere to the preservation of our soul right now in time through faith, persistent faith, perseverance, which is really the perseverance of Jesus, as Revelation 1.9 says. Now, We are now located on the map of God's plan precisely at the collision of the temporal evil day and the everlasting day of salvation. The evil day will soon be stripped entirely off 
from the day of salvation to which it stubbornly clings. Until then, we are to strip. We strip off the old enslaved self and we put on the new self which is renewed by God's saving act in Jesus and by the spirit of grace. You can read about that in Ephesians 4, to 24. You can read about the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10, 29. You can read about him stripping off principalities and powers in Colossians 2. You can read about us putting off the old man with the lie in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Putting on the new, putting on that new person that will be alive and well throughout the everlasting, endless day of salvation. Now, the reason that Hebrews involves both exposition, which is kind of a theological expose, and exhortation, which is a urgent incentivization, the reason it has both elements is because on the one hand, we have so great salvation in Jesus But on the other hand, we have this clashing juncture that we're in, and therefore we need a powerful word of encouragement. That's Hebrews. Hebrews, in a nutshell, is a powerful word of encouragement, a word of encouragement, a word of paraclesis, Hebrews 13, 22. It involves magnificent exposition, theological insight, Christological soteriological, eschatological, angelological, homardiological, eschatological. All these things, insights, but it's a word of exhortation. Now, in Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9, with a reference to Psalm, again, Psalm, 8, 4 through 6, Septuagint 8, 5 through 7. The writer says, we don't yet see everything under his feet. We aren't in that day of eschatological final consummation and fulfillment when there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. We don't see everything under his feet, including all of his enemies. We see his enemies running wild everywhere. But here it is. But we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. Now by gazing him, gazing, not glancing, gazing, fixing our eyes on him with the eyes of our heart. Now I I say the eyes of our heart quite often. And it's actually a phrase from Ephesians 1.18. The eyes of our heart, cardias, being enlightened. So we see, we gaze at him with the eyes of our heart. We are, as we do this, armed with great hope and with a confident expectation of everything actually being under his feet with death absolutely annihilated. We are located on the map of God's purpose when we don't see everything under Jesus' feet. But by the gift of faith, we have the substance of things hoped for and the conviction 
of things not yet seen. Like the crucified Jesus, we anticipate singing hymns in the midst of the congregation. When Jesus says to the Father, here I am, me and the children you've given to me. When all of the human race sings hymns to the Father, led by the Son, who sings in the midst of the great congregation. Now, by this word of encouragement called Hebrews, Hebrews is that word of encouragement. By this word of encouragement called Hebrews, we're urged to run the race <clears throat> of the agona. That word is actually found right in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We are urged to run the race, which is a metaphor for engage in the struggle of the agona that is before us. We are urged to run across the bridge, in other words, from the evil age to the great reward on the other side. Another metaphor. While we run, while we run, we look unto Jesus. Hebrews 2, 8, and 9. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Maybe there's a runner who runs in the 2021 Olympics because they've been put off. Maybe that runner thinks of the great Jesse Owens who ran and the Nazis were very offended that a black man would win a race over the Aryan runners. Maybe one would admire this Jesse Owens from the past and think of his great race and they would look to him as they ran the race. Well, we're looking to Jesus who ran this race And endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Father in the highest heights of heaven. While we run, we look to Jesus, who endured the cross, but then was exalted to the right side of the majesty on high. In him, God has magnified and made majestic his salvations. It is said that the cross comes before the crown. Another Christian slogan. But let it also be said that the crown of thorns precedes the corona of glory. In Hebrews, the word faith almost takes on the definition perseverance. In Hebrews, the word faith almost takes on the definition perseverance. Hebrews is a homily, a sermon of sorts, which introduces the phenomenon that the king who is crowned with glory and honor was also appointed a high priest through the age, a high priest through the age, throughout the age, it says. Remember that word forever is kind of a touchy word. He was appointed a high priest through the age after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4, cited several times in Hebrews, including 5.6 and 5.10. 
Now, the priesthood of Jesus, and I'm ready to close. Pay attention. Stay awake. The priesthood of Jesus by which he exercises intercession on our behalf is extremely vital for saints in the arena, in the agona, in the clash of the ages. It is his priesthood that carries us through this evil age to the other side. The priesthood of Christ Jesus bridges the clash of the ages because he's called a priest throughout the age. That means that Jesus is a priest throughout the clash of the ages and that he is a priest throughout the duration of the present evil age. He is a faithful and compassionate high priest who runs to the aid of his people as God, the Father, ran to Jesus' aid when in the days of his flesh he cried with a great outcry and with tears to him who was able to save him from death. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Hebrews 14, 15 to 16. 4, 14 to 16. Hebrews 5, 7. So as the scripture says, and please take this to heart right now, for the many who are suffering in this present plague and for other reasons, reasons like tornadoes ripping through the south of our nation. Think of this for your own heartaches and heartbreaks. In Psalm 34, 18, just before 34, 19, It says, the Lord is near. Angus is the word. It's used also in Philippians 4, 5. The Lord is near. It says, the Lord is near those whose hearts are crushed and saves the downcast of spirit. Write this upon your heart as I pray that the Lord will write this upon your heart, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So in closing... We have before us, and I hope this keeps your attention, I'm using a rhetorical device. We have before us another very intriguing question to hold our attention. Does you are a priest forever, actually meaning you are a priest throughout the age? Does that mean that Jesus' priesthood carries on through the everlasting age and into the age of the ages that we call forever? Or does that function and role of his as a priest cease when he will have saved us to the uttermost, when we are glorified? Will he still be running to help us after we have become fully satisfied, having awakened? With his likeness. Psalm 17, 15. That's a question. I'll leave it there. So Father, we thank you that we have this wonderful, glorious salvation. Thank you that you have magnified the salvations of your king. That you've shown loyalty to your anointed. And because, Father, you have shown fidelity and loyalty to your anointed, you have allowed him to be crowned with glory and honor. Because you have shown loyalty to your anointed and justified him, we have justification in him. 
because you have shown loyalty to your anointed and faithfulness to him, we now participate in his own faithfulness, for we were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. And yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we live now by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Father, provide for families throughout this nation. Raise up men and women who know the times and who know what America should do and the nation should do in order to bring about economic recovery. And Father, we pray for those who have lost loved ones in this virus, whose hearts are crushed, that you will draw near yourself, that the Father and Jesus Christ himself will bring good hope and comfort and eternal encouragement to them, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 to 17. Give us perseverance, Father, the perseverance of Jesus, to remain diligent, to fulfill what we need to fulfill behind closed doors for a little while. And may we look to you, and may millions more look to your Son through this crisis, in this crisis, for we pray it in his name. We pray that you'll provide for churches that are, have closed the doors, for pastors who are enduring great difficulty, for the pastor who recently lost his life to coronavirus in Virginia. May there be no condemnation, but may there be the love of God revealed in all Christian congregations. And Father, may your grace prevail. May congregations be provided for, and may you lift up churches that have preached your word. And those that have not, may they be awakened to the true gospel of the glory of your Son, which will one day fill the earth. And Father, work repentance in me, work repentance in all of us in these times so that we come forth from here with a freshness, a newness of life, and a fresh newness of service in which we serve you acceptably through the reception of your amazing grace. We ask all these things and much more that our hearts can't even utter, but only the Spirit can make intercession through us and by us. In Jesus' name, amen.